Hi everyone, we are here, the Ask Mike show, and I'm joined with Ron Russell in the studio. Ron, thanks for being a guest. Well, thank you for asking me, and I'm so jealous because you're in Spain, and I love Spain, and I've traveled through Spain. I, I drove from, because we're from Genoa, Italy, so I drove through uh, Monte Carlo down into Bass, and then around all the way past Lisbon, and then up into Madrid. Also, friends of mine from England, they go to that little part of Spain, that sort of opposite England kind of, what is the name of that part of Spain again? I guess it's northern, north-western. Uh, or... Is it the, um, I think there's the Balearic Islands, there's the Canary Islands. There's... No, not islands, it's actual Spain. Right. It's a, ta it's a town in Spain that most people from England are now retiring in. I've never been there, but it's supposed to be beautiful. So you spend the majority of your time sort of in in the golden era of Hollywood, as they call it. You've been in the business now for for more than sixty years. Do you have sixty four years? And I helped start that golden Hollywood thing. When I interviewed Arlene Dahl, movie star, I said to her, "I said you're from the golden era of Hollywood," and she said, "Oh, Ron, I love that. I'm going to use that from now on, golden era." And somehow it caught on. I don't know if I'm responsible, but I call it the golden age of Hollywood when legends were made. And I knew the legends. I, I grew up with them. What was some of the initial, initial stages like? Because now looking back, it was probably amazing looking back over, over what sort of transpired over that level of, of time, right? But what was it like initially? Well, when I was very young, the major stars didn't give me much attention because I was young. As I grew older, and they became older than I, they respected me, and we became friends. I wasn't friends with I was friends with Jane Russell, the movie legend, for many years. She's like my sister, my dearest friend. We hung out together. We stayed at each other's homes. We traveled together. We were brother and sister. Uh, Jane would not have had that relationship with me when I was 19. But being a, she was 28 years older than I, but didn't look it. And my name is Russell, and I took my name from her because I'm Italian-American, and I had a very ethnic Italian name. And if I would go to go sees, we called them in those days, or auditions, my name was Rolando Serego. And they didn't, you know, are you Puerto Rican? I said, no, I'm Italian. Are you Cuban? I said, no, I'm Italian. You know, from Italy, we have good food. And they would say, okay, but I never got hired because I was considered too ethnic. They wanted Tab Hunter, Troy Donahue. In those days, it was all blue-eyed, blonde, Americana, waspy-looking college guys. I was from Brooklyn with a heavy Italian Brooklyn accent, and I looked like a gangster. Yeah. I was very, I had jet black hair, I mean, very dark. I looked like I would kill you in a minute. <laughs> so I really didn't get work. Um, my brother-in-law, Evan J. Anton, was a documentary movie producer, and he knew uh, Sidney Lomet, the uh, director, and he knew I was crazy about Sophia Loren, and I was 19 years old. He said, how would you like to be in a movie with Sophia Loren? I said, oh, frig you, don't make jokes with me. He said, Ron, I'm not kidding, I could put you in. It's not, you know, you go, you're sneaking in because you're not union. It's a union movie, but we can sneak you in as one of the soldiers. I said, are you kidding? And he said, yeah, and you'll be in a shot with Sophia. Well, my heart stopped. I had a stroke. I went into a convulsion. Yeah. I started screaming and fainting, and you bet your ass I was. Yeah. So I went as a soldier. Now, the scene that I'm in a couple of scenes was we shot three days. We shot in uh, Central Park. We shot in uh, Grand Central Station and Long Beach, Long Island at a railroad station that was supposed to be Miami Beach, Florida. And the scene is Sophia Loren and the sexy, beautiful, blonde bombshell Barbara Nichols walk down the platform of the railroad station and all of us soldiers were hanging off the train and screaming how gorgeous they are. Hey, beautiful. Wow, wow. Woo, 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 woo. Well, I've always had a great head of hair, big hair, black. So I decided to get my helmet and hang it behind my head. <laughs> so I so I would be different than the rest of the soldiers. Even at 19, I was stage smart. Well, the director came over and he said, hey, soldier, pull that hat up. I said, why? He said, what do you mean, why? Pull the hat up. I said, my hair is beautiful. Why should I hide my hair? 
So he started to laugh. He said, okay, leave your helmet off. So I'm the only one in the opening of the film that you could see me, a big, tall, skinny kid, skinny <laughs> and tall and dark with the helmet hanging from my head. Well, when Sophia Loren passed by, I was really screaming. I wasn't acting. I mean, she was just so magnificently drop-dead, beyond belief gorgeous. And when she smiled, oh, my God, what a smile. What a beautiful woman she is. Still, at 86 years old, she's still stunningly beautiful. Anyway, that started my career. And I got a taste of it, and I said, this is what I've always wanted to do. Uh, in school, I was always the star of the play. I made sure of that. You know, I always got what I wanted. Yeah. Uh, and it's just been a, a joy ride over the years. I did a lot of stand-up comedy uh, for years, uh, Made did a lot of television. Um, people might recognize me from when I was young and skinny with black hair. And then I retired. I moved to Florida and I said, you know, I've had it. The business has changed. I hate the way they work. The studios we don't have anymore. They shoot a movie in 10 days with a, a video, with a, a cell phone. I don't work that way. You know, I'm from the old days. Then I met Jimmy Starr. And Jimmy Starr said he had a radio show. And I said, oh, good, because I have a television show on Channel 111 in Palm Springs. It's called Set the Record Straight. And I interview all the great legendary Hollywood movie stars like Lauren Bacall, Betty Davis, Cliff Robertson, Jane Russell, Arlene Dahl, uh, Terry Moore. It, the list just goes on and on and on. Most of my interviews, by the way, are on YouTube. So you can go and see them. They're unfiltered, uncensored. I ask questions that you wanted to ask the stars. Like Jane Russell, I said, Jane, what size bra were you in 1940? She said, a 36B. That's all, Ron. <laughs> I, was, I was not a cow. No. I said, because you're famous for your boobs. And her boobs were little. They were 36Bs. But Howard Hughes knew how to do cleavage. And he knew how to promote her boobs. And he made her into a sex symbol, which she never liked. She wanted to be, uh, she was a born-again Christian, or as she said, a Christian. And she didn't like being exploited. And she didn't like uh, hanging them out and doing that. And she called it one of the Lord's mistakes. I used to get a kick out of that. When she'd say, oh, yeah, she said, you know, my career in Hollywood was the Lord's mistake. And I thought, oh, Jane, you had nothing to do with it, right? When they told you to hang your knockers out, you did. You didn't say, the Lord said not to. And then she'd say, hush, hush, because she didn't want to hear it. Jane Russell was a wonderful human being. I, I adore her and I miss her. Uh, probably one of my dearest friends in the world. I, I did know Betty Davis. We were not best friends, but I knew her, and I was in her company many times. I went to a party up at her house on Havenhurst in Hollywood, and I was amazed at how this woman could smoke a cigarette and drink a scotch at the same time, and she blew out the smoke without the scotch spraying out. Well, must be it, was, it was a talent. Yeah. And I commented on it, and she said, Ron, there's nothing more delicious than nicotine and good scotch. <laughs> <laughs> she was wonderful. She had a, a dirty mouth, a big sense of humor. She was far from the lady she was in film. She was a regular yank, a tough broad. And she liked guys that were tough with her. She didn't like mamby-pamby men. Don't kiss her ass. She couldn't tolerate that kind of shit. She hated it. She liked it, a punch to the jaw. You know, tell it like it is and Betty was your buddy. Yeah. I really liked Betty Davis uh, an awful lot. She came to my 50th birthday party, and uh, I was so thrilled. And they did a birthday cake for me with Betty's picture on it with a cigarette. And she said, Ron, it's your birthday, not mine. I said, I know, but they wanted to make it a Betty Davis theme because they know how, how crazy about you I am. She was just a sweetie pie. She was about two feet tall, by the way. Right. small the tiniest little lady in the world with the most gorgeous blue eyes and it never filmed that way in film she looked tall with dark eyes she just was the opposite of the persona in film lauren bacall who's humphrey bogart's wife i adore peter allen the, the singer my wonderful friend peter allen for years he got aids and he died and oh. We lost a, you know who Peter Allen is, he's married to Liza Minnelli. Hmm. Uh, he's a gay guy and he's a wonderful friend of mine for so many years. He lived at the Dakota 
and so did Lauren Bacall at the time. And I went to one of Peter's, I think it was one of his birthday parties. And he had a long, long hallway before you got to the living room. And as I'm walking down the hallway, I see a crowd of gay guys all in the center of the living room. And I thought, what the hell is going on in the middle of that room? It was Lauren Bacall. And she was going at it like crazy because she loved the gay boys. And she was so drunk, she couldn't even stand up. The guys were holding her. They were pushing her back and forth. She was bombed out of her bird. But so funny, first time I met her, I uh, didn't get much out of her. She didn't even know where she was. Uh, the next time, a friend of mine said, um, I want to do a birthday. No, I want, what is it? I want to do a luncheon, a thousand dollar a plate luncheon for Lauren Bacall's favorite organization. Do you know her? And I said, I don't know her, but I can reach her. I can call her. I have Peter Allen will definitely give me her number. And Peter did. And I called Betty or Lauren and I said to her, blah, 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 blah. She said, how many people? I said, dinner for 12. She Lunch for 12. She said, oh, $12,000 to my cause. She said, I definitely will do it. Now I go there and there's no chair for me. There's just 12 chairs. So I said to Lauren, I thought I was invited to lunch. She said, you weren't? I said, well, I'm not giving you a thousand bucks. That's for sure. She said, you weren't invited for lunch, Ron? She said, but you put this together. What's going on here? She said, you know what, honey, sit on my lap. And <laughs> she thought I was going to not do it. Well, I went and sat on Lauren Bacall's lap. And I said, I want a picture. But nobody was there to take a picture of me sitting on Humphrey Bogart's wife's lap. And she started to laugh. She was a cool broad. I saw her quite a few times afterwards. The question I asked her when I interviewed her is, I said, Lauren, this is a stupid question, but I have to ask it. What was it like being married to Bogey? And she said, terrific. She said, he was everything you would want in a man. And she said, and I could never, and I've never been able to replace him. And I thought that was very beautiful, what she said about Humphrey Bogart. Um, who else can we talk about? Oh, Cliff Robertson. Oh my God. The nightmare of nightmares. You could watch that show on YouTube to interview him was a nightmare. So Cliff, how you doing? Yep. You know, <laughs> are you, are you going out tonight? Nope. <laughs> I, I, I said, this has got to go. This guy is not answering any of my fucking questions. Really oh, I said to him, I said, I heard your wife is a bitch. He said, no, she's not a bitch. She just plays bitches. I said, I know she plays bitches really well. That's why I thought maybe she was a bitch. So I woke him up. <laughs> uh, I said, do you, have, do you have a nasty story to tell me? I like slander and dirt. He said, well, almost. He said, I was doing autumn leaves with Joan Crawford. And Joan Crawford wanted to meet me. Now, Joan Crawford was already an old bag, maybe 50-something. And Cliff was 29, 30. Handsome, young, strappy guy. So he goes up to uh, her house in Bristol, uh, L.A., and she's in a chaise lounge in a white terry cloth kimono, and somebody's doing her nails, another one is painting her toenails like the princess, and she's talking to him and interviewing him, and then when she was done, she said to him, uh, please come with me, come up to my bedroom with me, and he's a little leery. Well, he went up to the bedroom, and Joan Crawford proceeded to lay on the bed, open the kimono, and put one leg up in the air. So he had on a wristwatch that his girlfriend gave him, and the wristwatch went off. And he said, oh, excuse me, Miss Crawford, but I have to go. I have an appointment. My watch just told me so. So he said he left unscathed by Joan Crawford. So that was big coming out of Cliff Robertson, because he wasn't really much of a talker. What was the um, Jimmy Star show then? What, how did you, you mentioned, because that's one of the main things that, that you still do to this day. You mentioned that you, you came across Jimmy. Like how did, how did that happen? I was walking in the mall in Boca Raton, Florida after retiring, and Jimmy came up to me and he said to me, excuse me for my saying this, I'm not narcissistic, but what the truth is the truth. He said, you're the most gorgeous man in this mall. And I was highly insulted because I thought, what makes him think I'm gay? And why would he say that? Yeah. So I turned around and I said, get the fuck out of here. Brooklyn style, yeah. you moron. You had to see what he looked like. Earrings, long hair. His dungarees were ripped with boxer shorts showing on the crotch. 
ugly, broken shoe. It was like a rock star, because that's what he did. He dressed the rockers. He dressed Elton John and everybody, um, all the big rock and roll stars. And he was a manufacturer and a designer of the Jimmy Star clothing line. And I just thought he was a derelict bum. I mean, he could have been a bad person, as far as I know. Now, he's following me all over the mall. And I went up to Bed Bath & Beyond to look for a new comforter for my bed. And in Boca, you look out the glass window down on the escalator, and there he's standing. So I had to go down the escalator and pass him. So I thought to myself, well, this guy's going to get a, a very good punch in the face. Because if he stops me or harasses me, I'm going to let him. I'm going to knock him on his ass. I'm capable of doing that. Yeah. Tough Brooklyn kid. Yeah. I went, I went down, and he became very polite. And I just said, listen, buddy, not, go away. You're, just take a powder. Go away. And I left them all. A couple of weeks later, I'm shopping there with this guy I'm dating, Burton Gazar, another actor. And Jimmy's in the mall again. I figured, this guy, what does he live in the mall? He has no house. He must sleep in one of the halls in the mall. <laughs> and he comes up to me and he starts talking to me. And he said, you know, I have a radio show. And he sounded legit. And I said, oh, I have a TV show out in California. And we t chatted and chatted. And I said, listen, my daughter Deirdre is uh, doing a big promotional thing for the CEO of Costco. He owns a gorgeous home in Plantation, Florida, huge mansion. And he's inviting all his friends to the house. And he wants it to be a haunted house for Halloween. So my daughter had to hire all the set people to come in and build sets and coffins and uh, mystery rooms and whatever, whatever. And I said, said to Jimmy, listen, we need an undertaker. Do you want to be an undertaker? Of course, he looked weird, and he looked like he could be a scary, weird undertaker. He said he'd love to. Well, to make a long story short, the day that we were doing it, the party, I walked into the, 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 the viewing room where the coffin was with this wonderful dead body that rose and flew up into the air. And there's Jimmy. Black shoes, a beautiful navy blue suit, a white shirt, a tie, no earrings, and a haircut. And he looked like a Ralph Lauren model. And I said to myself, I don't believe this guy. He did all of that for this stupid party. How nice of him. Yeah. And that's, what, that's when I liked him. And from there, we just dated. And eventually, we got married. We'll be married nine years in October. Oh, nice. And I'm on Jimmy Starr's show many nine, ten years. Um, you know, it went from a radio show to a television show, and now we're all over the world. We have 4.5 million viewers and listeners every week. Uh, we were voted the number one show in the world by the New York uh, Weekly Times and the LA Weekly Times. And we, ha we were nominated for an Emmy a few years ago. So I guess whatever we're doing, we're doing right because we seem to be received well. Yeah. Uh, that's the bragging part. You know, the, you got to do that bullshit a little bit. I <laughs> do, yeah. yeah. You know, it's part, of the, it's part of the game. I'm not nuts about bragging, but, you know, it's okay. What are some of the things that you could pinpoint? Because if you both had, so you had the TV show, Jimmy had the radio show, did you combine things together and just sort of merged? Or did you have, like, two shows, your own show, and then the Jimmy Star Shelley. What was the transition like? Time Warner Cable dissolved and became some other crap. I forgot what time. I was, with, I was on Time Warner Cable, and my contract absolutely was up, and I was thrilled because Time Warner Cable gave me a lot of grief because my show, when I interviewed the stars, I asked them questions that no one would dare ask these stars. And they weren't embarrassing questions, but they were questions that people wanted to know. Truths about divorce, truths, you know, like Cheryl Crane, did your mother Lana Turner really kill Stampinato, or did you kill him, Cheryl? And Time Warner went nuts. They said, you can't do that, Ron. That's, oh my God, you can't ask those questions. Mm. And I said, listen, Jane Russell, who was my buddy, was my first show. I went to Jane and I said, Jane, I want to do a talk show. This is like a hundred years ago. Uh, would you be my first guest? She said, darling, for you, anything. And Jane Russell came on. When I asked her about her bra, it went up to the main office. I got called on the carpet. They were saying, how did you ask Jane Russell about her bra? We don't do that. I said, what are you talking about? It's a fucking bra. Yeah. I didn't tell her to whip out her tits. I said, it's a bra. And I wanted to know her bra size. Well, we don't. I said, you don't like it. 
I said, I understand when I passed by the studio where we have all the mechanics. I wasn't on the air but 10 minutes and got 16,000 hits. They said, oh, really? I said, yeah. At the end of the week, that show got more hits than Channel 111 ever got hit with anybody. And they had this old broad on there who I forgot her name. She was an interviewer for a million years. She never got the hits I got. So Time Warner backed off. When I spoke with Arlene Dahl about the Cheryl Crane murder, uh, Arlene Dahl was married to Lex Barker, Tarzan. Oh, and he was a pedophile, Lex Barker. And he was raping Lana Turner's daughter, Cheryl Crane, when she was 10 years old for over a year. Well, she began to bleed one night profusely and told her grandmother what was going on. And they took her to the emergency room. Well, Lana Turner found out that Lex Barker was having sex with her daughter. She went nuts. She grabbed a gun and went after Lex Barker and threatened to kill him if he ever went near her daughter again. So that establishes the fact that Lana Turner had a violent temper. So if she was willing to shoot Lex Barker for that, I'm sure she stabbed Tom Stompanato because she drank and got crazy. Anyway, that wasn't the subject. Arlene Dahl said, listen, after Lana Turner divorced Lex Barker, she said, I married him. And she said, Ron, let me tell you something. Lex had a package so large, had he ever entered a 10-year-old, he would have killed her. Okay, it's a perfectly good statement. I didn't faint from it. Wow, the officers went crazy. They said, oh my God, what are you turning the, into the show into? I said, she just told the truth. Oh, but large baggage, we can't do that. I said, she said large baggage, she didn't say big dick. So what are you all freaking out about? Mm. Meanwhile, that show still to today gets zillions of hits. Everyone loves that show. So I was through with Time Warner because they were too narrow-minded. They wanted the usual bullshit interview, like, how many movies have you made? You like doing movies and nonsense that nobody cares about. So my contract was up. I was glad. That's when I moved to, to Florida, to Boca, to retire. But Jimmy said, listen, you know, you're very funny and you're a good, good interviewer. Come on the show. Now it's radio. I don't do radio because half of what I do is with my hands and face. Yeah. I had difficulty. I was talking over everybody because I didn't read lips. See, like now when you're about to talk, I know when you're going to speak. So I shut up because I look at your face. I said, Jimmy, I can't do radio. I'm uncomfortable. I'm not good at it. Let's Skype. What do you mean Skype? I said, let's Skype. We were the first people to Skype. What we're doing now, Jimmy and I did 10 years ago. No, 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 no. We had a big fight in the car. I got out of the traffic light. I started to walk home, which was about 40 miles from where we lived. And he kept following me with the car. Get in the car, stupid. What's wrong with you? I said, I'm not going to be on your show. I can't talk to you anymore. You won't learn. You don't want to listen. You don't want to grow. So he gave in. Well, overnight, everybody, what is this? We could see movie stars in a split screen? Oh, my God, they were freaking out. Then a couple of years later, Ellen did it. And then this one did it. Then that one did it. And now everybody and their mother's doing it. I mean, there's more talk shows now on the air than there, there are people in the country. So I like to credit ourselves for that. I feel that honesty is... The only thing that comes out of a human being that we love, most of what comes out of a human is bullshit, self-gain or whatever, whatever. Yeah. I was raised by my old, like my mother was a silent movie actress, Jenny Gabriel. My father was a set builder. So I came from the, the movie world and my mother raised me with Ronnie, you're in a world of make-believe and you must always be honest, be honest to a fault. And I am, and I get in trouble yeah, all the time because I tell it like it is. But that's what makes our show good because I blow smoke up no one's ass. I don't inflate you if you're not. We talk turkey, and all the viewers love that. They say it's such an honest show because we know we're going to get the real McCoy, the real facts. We're not going to get the Hollywood make-believe stuff. That's always something that I think – Particularly now, it's becoming important to do that now. I mean, you, you guys were doing it 10 years ago. That was probably different to the status quo, where now it's seeming, at least in 
in a world of technology now that more people are starting to realize how important it is. How much blowback did you get when you were doing those interviews in the initial stages versus like now? Has it changed? Has the feedback changed? Is people more exposed to it? Has that changed how your, your show has been received? Absolutely. I won't, main, I won't name them, but they're very famous, beautiful, sexy movie stars that we've had on. Very beautiful, famous. You, you know who they are if you see them instantly. And they play with us. One, just the other day, we had this very famous horror movie actress. She's like number one in the business. And she came on and she said, look, Ron, for you, I wore a low-cut top. Look at my boobies. And she stood up in the camera and started shaking her boobies. So everybody's playing with us now. I'm not the outrageous guy with the potty mouth. People are coming on our show. They're cursing. They're telling the truth. Their stories are real. And it's wonderful because it, it's, we are now in a world where people want to know who you are because of the media. You can no longer hide. You can't hide your sexuality, your religion, or your political background. It's an impossibility. People find you out. You have to be honest, because if you become a liar, people are going to say, oh, that jerk is always lying. He's always bullshitting us. He's a phony. Yeah. I don't ever want those words synonymous with Ron Russell. Never. Never. Absolutely never. Betty Davis was the same as I. I remember talking to Betty one time at lunch, and I said to her, Betty, you and I get in a lot of trouble because of our big mouths. And she said, Ron, it's not big mouths that get us in trouble. It's the fact that nobody wants to hear the truth. Betty Davis hated directors because she knew better than most. And she would fight with her directors and say, I'm not doing that your way because it stinks. What do you want to wreck my career, you idiot? And if you do that today on a set, you're, you're going to be fired and you're in trouble. You can't get away with that. We're not allowed to make jokes anymore. I work with Sherry Davis and I work with Sadie Katz and all these gorgeous girls who are beautiful bosoms and they're sexy women. And on the set, years ago, we would tease them, make fun with Not anymore. You're not allowed to say, oh, your, your boobs are beautiful. Even something like that, you're sexist. They're all fucking nuts today. I remember Jane Russell telling me, she was in a movie with Clark Abel, the tall man. And she just finished singing a song about apples on a tree and I'm going to plant my apples here, whatever. And Clark Abel was laying in a lounge off camera. And when Jane came off the set after doing that, he said, hey, Jane, get over here. I'll plant your tree. Today, that wouldn't work. He would be called on charges because you can't do that. So it makes the set not fun. Also, the virus, we're not allowed to keep our masks off. So if we're two or three in a shot, we pull our masks off, we deliver what we're doing, and then put our masks back on, which is very, very inconvenient because it breaks the moment. It breaks the character. You know, I just finished playing a General Milan, a very tough general in the army. And doing that with the mask, I had to reestablish my toughness because my natural personality is not that way. Everybody else agrees that the mask thing is annoying. Uh, but at least we're, we're, we're going back to work. I have, I just finished four movies. I have six waiting to do and I'm excited. I can't wait to get back to work. The staying in the house crap is for the birds. Good thing we have the Jimmy Starr show with Ron Russell. Otherwise I go nuts. And I'm doing a lot of these interviews. I did about two or three last week and now you. So that keeps us, you know, working. Don't yeah. you agree? And it's nice to, Nice to have the connection. I mean, depending on which country you're in, each government's coping or going about their sort of coping strategy, if you will, very differently. You know, in, in America, that can change from state to state as well, so I've heard. So it's a very weird situation when everyone's coping with it in their own way. And sometimes the government can either help with that or, or not, right? It's insane what's going on in America. You know, I was raised in an America. I was born in 1940. There was a world war going on with Germany and Japan. As a child growing up, we didn't have coal to heat the house because we had to give it to the soldiers. 
We didn't have food because we had to give it to the military. We grew victory gardens. Uh, we were neighbors. I remember Christmas time, we would all go in each other's homes to look at the Christmas tree. And nobody was wealthy. I came from a very humble background. You know, working class people. But the one thing we were, we were all Americans. And we loved our country. And we didn't want the Germans to win and make America German. And we didn't want to speak German. Nor did we want the Japanese to win and that we would have to be Japanese. So we killed thousands and millions of beautiful American men and women in the Second World War. We lost a tremendous amount. We also helped England fight the Germans. So it was a time when we were unified. Today, my heart breaks when I hear people say, we hate America. We're going to change America. America stinks. It's awful. It was crappy. No, it wasn't. Yes, we had a thing called prejudice. Yeah. But so do they have that in Italy. Because we're Northern Italian. And if you talk to a Northern Italian, they look down at Sicilians and anybody from the south of Italy. They called them cafone, peasants. And if you go to parts of England and you see Cockney people, I have friends that stay, I won't say who they are, but one is a, a lawyer for the, one of the major studios in England. And he and his wife, they live in a very chic hotel right off of the park. And they won't have anything to do with those, whatever they're called. Oh, those people are dreadful. They don't even speak English. They're common. Yeah. So, the, so there is this bullshit all over the world. Japan. There are the very wealthy who will not even associate with the, with the poor people, as well as China. So let's not blame America for the only country that has prejudice. The prejudice we have against black people started 350 years ago. Why suddenly they want to burn down our cities to protest, I have no idea. I never owned a slave, and I never would. So why do you hate me? And the black people now really are arrogant. They're not respectful to white people anymore. They treat us poorly. And they're vindictive and they're angry. And I say, but why? I have many, many black friends that come to our home that we love. Of course, they don't do that because they come from a higher plane of thinking. They're in show business. And show business is no such thing as prejudice. I mean, I'm not a prejudiced person. I don't dislike anybody because of their color. Not at all. So I'm sad that there's a misguiding in my country right now where this black uh, matters thing. I say everyone matters, not only black people, but yes, we understand what you're saying. Absolutely. We're gay. Black people and gay people have the same feelings because the way black people were held back from living in certain neighborhoods, having certain jobs, so were gay people. And being gay all my life, I was friends with black people in the 1950s when it was unheard of. You were going to the village. My best friend Tommy had a black husband. So, you know, we don't know from that stuff, gay people. We're very open-minded and we don't have prejudice. Those are my dogs. Don't you love in-house studio? <laughs> so, I don't know why my country is so upset, up, so upside down. Our stock market is flying more than ever. Everybody's getting the money thrown at them. Real estate is the best it's ever been, and we have more jobs now than ever before. Whatever Trump did that they hate him so much for, I'm not in agreement of that. I don't like this making fun of Biden. I think that's dreadful. It's ageist that they're making fun of him, that he's senile, that he can't remember anything, that, you know, that he's a moron. I don't like any of that. I think it's totally disrespectful. But my country right now is shaking. And it needs stability. But the one thing I want to send out to everyone that's watching this is we are American. Everybody all over the world wants to be an American. And, I, and don't say no to that. Because if it didn't, they wouldn't want McDonald's and dungarees and our cars. Everything that we have, the world wanted. I went to Italy in 1954, five, six, four. And the Italians didn't have television, we did. They didn't have the toilets that we have. Public places didn't even have toilet paper. 
Some places you went to the bathroom, it was a hole, not even a toilet bowl. Americans had beautiful homes, beautiful toilets, beautiful showers. In Italy, they had a bathtub with a hose. Um, the cars were tiny in Italy, and we were in these enormous, big, big, big cars. Back in those days, America was the showplace for the world. Fala Americano, Fala Americano. Do like the Americans. Today, no longer. Italy has surpassed us. They have the most beautiful bathrooms, the most beautiful homes. They dress better than we do. Americans nowadays dress like slobs. You go to, you know, they do. They're all fucking slobs with the, the, the sneakers and those baggy pants down to their ass with their crotches and down to their ankles. I mean, what are they, morons? You go to Europe, you go to France, the men are divine yet, and the women are chic. I mean, even in England, my friend, oh, my friend's in England. I, when I, I dress all the time because I'm an old bag. But when I go to Europe, I doll up because my friends, when I go to dinner parties, baby, we don't have paper cups. I mean, my, no, my friend James's house, Baker Farm in, in uh, Lancashire, I was eating on 18th century China from his uncle. And sterling silver, so heavy I couldn't pick it up. Uh, ele elegant dining. Europe is so elegant. I mean, I said to Jimmy, I could live in Europe, but Jimmy can't because of his business. He has to stay here. But I could so live in, in the south of France or Italy without any problem. It is so civilized. It is so beautiful. So America is no longer the big deal. Japan is fabulous. I've never been. And Hong Kong is supposedly outrageous. They have, look at the trains they have. Oh, look at the trains in Italy and France. Magnificent. Look at our trains. Graffiti all over, broken dirt. Yeah, please. Anyway, America's changed. Yeah, you, you do make a lot of good points, to be fair. I mean, the world's definitely changed. It's changing in some ways, I guess, fearful or trying to figure out how the well, world the Amer we Americans are afraid of communism. We don't like communism. And it seems that little by little, communism is trying very desperately to sneak into our capitalistic society. The reason America was powerful was America manufactured and supplied the world. America no longer manufactures. I firmly believe the virus was man-made and it was sent out to destroy the American economy because the Japanese wanted their economy to be stronger than ours. Somehow it spread to Italy and all the countries where it shouldn't have gone. I believe it was directed to America. Many Americans believe this also. It's a mysterious virus, you know, where it came from and where it is, nobody died from it. None of the officials that are in the city that it came from died. So there's a lot of political crap going around. Who knows what, fake news or whatever. We don't know. But um, if we don't get back to being manufacturing, and if we don't get back to being who we were years ago, we will become a third world country. And I don't think the American people could tolerate a third world country. Don't take away their Mercedes and their BMWs. Don't take away their million point five homes with the swimming pool. Don't try it because they'll kill you. Americans are spoiled. <laughs> spoiled rotten. We have every convenience. We have everything to make our lives plush and wonderful. Try taking it away. You're going to have a revolution. You know, I mean, I can't, I can't believe that we're going to crash our real estate market so the homes go down half price of what they are so the poor people can afford to buy a home. Some of my rich friends, they in no way will live next to poor people. They're snobs. They deliberately live up on the hill in the $3.5 million houses among each other. And God forbid a poor person moved up there, they'd have a stroke. <laughs> so it's all bullshit. <laughs> so we've got the, the Jimmy Star Show with Ron Russell. Where else do you hang out, Ron? Are you on social media at all? Are you... On like Facebook or Twitter? I'm, I, as I said, I'm, I'm like ancient. I know none of this crap. Jimmy does all of that for me. We have people, you know, assistants and stuff that work all that. I'm on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and then the big one that everybody uses. Twitter? 
Twitter. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't know how to do that stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I, like, you know, I, I, Jimmy has a, a brand new BMW. I thought I would take a ride in it up to my, up the mountains to cool off. Well, I got up there and I shut the car off and I went by the lake and I sat there, had a lunch, got back in the car, couldn't start it. It wouldn't start. I pressed the button, wouldn't start. I was delirious. I called Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, burn this car. It doesn't work. He said, what do you mean? I said, it's not starting. He said, what are you doing wrong? I said, nothing. I, I do. I put my foot on the pedal. I press and I push the button. Okay, he told me what to do. I started the engine. I couldn't get it in reverse because it's not like an old-fashioned car. You got to press the side, do something, or push it. I don't know what the fuck you do. I still don't get it right, okay? So there was a young fellow walking by my car. I said, excuse me, sir, would you do me a favor? Could you put my car in reverse? He started to laugh. I said, what's so funny? He said, I was just thinking of my father. My father had the same problem when he borrowed my car. I said, well, I drive a 204 Audi TT Roadster convertible. You turn the key, you put the fucking thing in drive, and you go. <laughs> I mean, he's got a screen on the car that I got to look at the Oh, I got Now he, we, we were thinking of getting a Tesla. Well, we went to the dealer and we test drove a Tesla. Now, that's a trip and a half. You got to use your cell phone to get in the car. It's got a movie screen like Cinerama on the dashboard. And then everything you want, you got to push the screen to get it to go. I said, mm -mm. I love my little Audi TT Roadster. I'll never get rid of my car. It's bright canary yellow convertible. Nice. And, it, and it's a custom. There are very few customs were made. It's an Audi TT Quadro custom uh, convertible, little guy. And I love my car. So easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ron, it's been great to have you on. Shared loads of stories there about, you know, what, what it was like in Hollywood. And I bet you're so glad to get out. I bet you're really glad to get rid of all the rules and all the regulations and being told what to do and what not to do. And I don't listen. Yeah. Oh, I don't pay mind to that. We went to a, a dinner party last night up in the mountains to cool off to friend's house. There were about eight of us. None of us had masks on. We didn't care. Because we firmly believe that this virus exists, it does, but it's not what the media, you know, I'm media, I've been in media 43 years or whatever, and I know how media jumps on bullshit. If an airplane crashes, they play it up for a month, then they do the story on the people in the plane, you know, they never end. And the media loved the COVID thing, because wow, look what we've got now, every day we could terrify people and scare people. Yes, it exists, yes, it has killed many people. But also, we are in the zillions of people on the planet who haven't died. So the, the, the number of people who have died versus the number of people exposed to the virus doesn't balance. And Palm Springs in the desert, I don't think that virus lives in 127 degrees. Uh, so I don't, I'm not afraid of it. And if I got it, you know what? Luck of the draw. My destiny. Everyone has to die from something. And if that's it, what can I do? But I'll be damned if I'm going to suffer and ruin what's left of my... I'm 80. What have I got left? Five, six years if I'm lucky? That's decent? You think I'm going to spend it in my house as a prisoner? Screw that number. No way, baby. No way. Live. Don't, don't worry about dying. Dying will take care of you. It's there. Learn, learn how to live. Living is important. That's an amazing way to end, Ron. I do think that... I do think that there are people out there that need to be a bit more cautious. And then there are people out there that are under no real threat from it. If they catch it, they recover. And death is just sort of keep going on as they always have. They, you know, Jimmy and I went to Malibu a couple of weeks ago to visit a friend up at the colony. And Malibu is a beach in L.A., a long, long beach. The cars that were parked along the beach were in the hundreds. The people on the beach were in the thousands. It was 102, I think, in L.A. at the time. And I said to Jimmy, I can't believe all these, no masks, everything was like normal. The beach went from Santa Monica all the way up to Ventura, packed with, and that's a long 30-mile drive, packed with people, packed. I didn't read the next day that everybody on the beach died. 
So look at the amount of people that are out there having a good time that aren't dying. The people who are dying are the people who are my age and people who have illnesses. It's all about the immune system. If you have a healthy immune system, you could get the virus, but it's a virus. It'll go away. My, I have two friends of mine from Brooklyn, husband and wife. She caught the virus. He is one of those people that has it and gives it, but doesn't get sick from it. So they, you have to worry about people like that. But I don't think the virus is as scary as it is. Everyone here is saying after the election, watch the virus disappear. And I'm curious to see if that happens. And if it does happen, boy, did the media really make jerks out of the world. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how no matter what happens, there's going to be people that believed it before it happened, and they'll be the smuggest people ever, right? Like, if it was political, if it was a, a man-made thing, and the people... Deliberate, deliberate. They'll be smug if it turns out to be true. But if it turns out to be false, then the other rest of the people will be all smug saying, ha-ha, we were right. So I think there's that's going to happen no matter what. You know, there's always going to be people out there that believe the truth, and they're going to be more smug than the people that believe something that isn't true. So I think that that's, that's going to happen. Yeah, but how it our, our world leaders lie. Every country, in Italy, they hate the president. In England, they can't stand, what's his name? You know, in Canada, they make fun of him. So everybody's political leader is disrespected. Why? Because, now, aliens, let's talk about that. There's proof about flying saucers have landed here with people in them, documented proof about that, but yet 50% say no, it's not possible. Yet they believe that Jesus Christ, who was a man, was killed, hung, and then put in a cave and got out and went to heaven to meet his father. That fantasy they believe. It's okay. You could believe in that because you're taught that as a child. But don't believe that possibly billions of years ago, extraterrestrials came to this planet and harvested it, and we are descendants of them. So there's so many things out there. Dying. You die, you go to heaven. Nobody ever came back and told us. No one knows what it is like after you die, but we'll all find out, won't we? So it's the same thing with politics. You will never find out where that virus came from. You will never, because the economy will crash. The world will go berserk. So they're going to lie, and they're going to say, oh, it came from the, the, the bat. Somebody ate, a Chinaman cooked the bat and got the virus and spread all over the world. That one I love. That's better than and the Martians coming in from outer space. <laughs> yeah. Well, since you put it like that, Ron, um, uh, <laughs> there's a lot out there that, uh, if you, if worded in the right way, does sound like a bit of a joke, doesn't it? If you think about it, it's a start of Well, you know, it's all man-made bullshit. Today we have a thing called media. Well, back in the days of the ancient Romans, they had a thing called media, which was gossip. They used to gossip like crazy in the ancient Greek world or the ancient Roman world. They would have meetings in court squares where people would go to gossip about the neighbor next door. That was the only entertainment they had. They didn't have television. They didn't have Mickey Mouse. They had the neighbor. So if I knew that you were screwing the other guy's wife, I couldn't wait to go in the courtyard with all the people and say, guess what? My next door neighbor is screwing my other neighbor's wife. And that was the entertainment. That was the media. So they made up stories. Well, this man, he, he made water into wine. He's Jesus. He's God. This one. And then the Jews say the Messiah is still coming. And then the Egyptians say, put him in a casket. He's going to shoot up to the planets. And so everybody's got their own religion. Yeah. But nobody knows because nobody came back and said, yes. So the same thing with what's going on in politics. I mean, if you think Trump is any worse than Clinton or Kennedy, Kennedy was banging every woman in the world. Kennedy and his brother had Marilyn Monroe murdered. The CIA did it. Jane Russell told me the same thing. Marilyn Monroe had a big mouth and was a druggie, and when she was going to squeal on Cuba, well, they knocked her off. Just like they killed Dorothy Kilgallen, the newspaper reporter, because she was going to write an article about Marilyn Monroe's death. Just like Marilyn Monroe's cab driver, who used to pick her up every day and take her where she wanted to go, knew too much, and his car went off a cliff in L.A. 
So all of these things people don't hear. They don't get it. They don't put it together. They want it in headlines. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's proven to be a very difficult world to navigate, no matter which way you, you slice it, no matter what you believe, no matter what you think, no matter what you think that you know, because no one really knows. It. Well, pe people say to me, oh, you're a Republican. I say, no, I'm not. Well, then you're a Democrat. I say, no, I'm not. And they say, what are you? I said, I'm just me. And I'm not voting. I refuse to vote. And people will say, oh, you know, that's a vote for Trump. I say, I don't give a shit. I refuse to vote. We don't need to hate each other. And you're listening to bullshit. You're reading garbage. You're reading Confidential Magazine. Slanderous crap. I saw a picture of Donald Trump banging, what's his name, the Chinese communist up the ass naked, a cartoon. I thought to myself, could you imagine during the Second World War if somebody did that with President Roosevelt banging Hiroshima, whatever the hell his name was? People would go insane. So today we have lost respect for each other. We have lost respect in politics. We have lost respect in movies. We have lost respect in socializing. I was raised with thank you, may I, and please. Not in this country anymore. You call somebody up and ask them for a favor, they don't even have the politeness to say, I can't do it. They ignore it. So no in America is don't answer them. Do you want to go to a party Friday night at my house? They don't answer you. That means no. What does it take? Two minutes to say, I'm sorry, but I, I can't make it? but I would love to another time. Polite, be polite. Ugh, I'm so happy I'm 80, because if I were 40 today, I'd be a revolutionist. <laughs> it's, it's been amazing to, to chat to you, to be fair. I mean, this is hopefully the first of many other, other conversations with yourself, Ron, because I know that you've got a hell of a lot to say on a lot of different topics. Um, it's been great to have you on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch.